Coming up in this episode of Finding Common Ground. How can we continue to do better, Bill? How can we do better? As Christians, how can we do better? I think you've got to get to know people and kind of walk in their shoes, look through their lenses. I go with the premise that it's hard to hate up close. We don't put in the work. We don't put in the work to get to know people and get to know their story. And I believe that hate is a mental disease. I believe that it is a disease of the mind and that it is the product of a deluded mind. I'm very complicated. What It was a time in my life when I hated all white people. And it's like, am I a black supremacist? You know, the name of the show is Common Ground Show. Do you think uh, blacks or Jews can find common ground with a white supremacist? It depends on the white supremacist. There are two sides to every coin. How do we deal with racial issues when they affect relationships? Finding common ground on all those issues that we come against. There's black and there's white. And I think as Christians, we have to learn how to get together because we're not in heaven. I've met more interesting people just by God just bringing them in. Republicans and Democrats. But a lot of times when it comes to race and it comes to culture and it comes to perception, even as Christians, we don't always understand. We look at it through our lenses. There's Bill. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland called Parma. Uh, Any black people in Parma? There was not one. Not one black person, Bill? Not one. Come on, Bill, you got to have one, a token black person, a token. And there's Odell. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina, public housing, single mom, divorced single mom with four kids, and I came up through segregation and all that kind of stuff. If a black person drove through the town, the police would stop and escort them out. Bill and Odell are finding common ground. A part of what we have to do is listen to each other, find the common ground, and question, not questioning you like you're on a witness stand, but questioning you for a better understanding. Father God, we just come to you in the precious name of Jesus Christ. God, sometime when I just look back on all the journeys and what you brought me from, dealing with family and dealing with my mother and, you know, the term of, you know, twice a child, once a man, And I just look at the cycle of life. And at 62 years old, I could just see how the cycle is turning from being a young kid riding up and down the highways, my grandfather, to now being a grandfather and knowing that my time is coming. So I just say, God, just use me up. Use me up. Continue to help me serve your people so that when my time comes to meet you face to face, you can say, well done. Well done, Odell. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. You did the best you could with what you had. And God, thank you for trusting me and others on this call today with your ministry, not our ministry, your ministry. So God, thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, we pray and believe. Amen. Amen. Dearly Father, I just want to lift up our our guest today, Calvin Pierce. Uh, Calvin has uh, a very interesting background that you've given him. Uh, and then you've been instrumental in his life to change. And uh, we lift up his ministry, which is bringing children and supporting children in the country of Georgia that was communist at one time and the great things he's doing with those children. And uh, we, we're so, so thankful, Lord, that you put that on his heart and you've given him resources and people to come into his life to walk alongside of his ministry. Amen. May we be ever mindful of those in need. Help us to provide food to the hungry, to heal the wounds of hatred with our love, comfort those in sorrow, and bring peace to those living in areas of unrest. 
Through our service to all, we thank you for all of our gifts. Amen. 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 Bill, you know, a lot of times when we think about the least of these, we think of this idea or this narrative that we find in our holy scriptures. However, when we're dealing with the actual least of these, we don't always do it right. Sometimes we bring our culture, sometimes we bring our experiences, sometimes we bring our judgment to others. How can we continue to do better, Bill? How can we do better? As Christians, how can we do better? Well, you know, our name of our show is The Common Ground Show. I think I think you've got to get to know people and kind of walk in their shoes, look through their lenses and uh, understand where they're coming from. And uh, even people that you don't understand or you, you think, uh, you know, might be a little crazy. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think you've got to uh, maybe take yourself out of your comfort zone and listen a little. Uh, and sometimes people uh, that are different than you or have a different viewpoint than you can get very worked up on that. And that's, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a self-defense or if it's just bent up anger or what, but uh, whatever it is, you have to let it play itself out so that you can get to the uh, individual's heart and, uh, and reach into that. I got a question for you, Odell. Have you ever met a white supremacist? I'm sure I have, but didn't always know it. Um, a lot of times I had one gentleman years ago, and I don't know if this qualifies as white supremacist or not. He was a card carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. And we talked and I was happy to be his boss. And year, about a year or so later, he came to me and just said, hey, Odell, just want to let you know, I never had a black boss before. And when you when we heard that you've been promoted as doc supervisor and dispatcher and you are our boss, we thought that you would automatically look out for all the black guys and treat the white guys wrong. You know, I didn't even go into why did he feel that way, anything like that. And then he said, hey, just want to let you know, I'm a card carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan. And I'm like, but, and I won't use his name. I said, but what, what does that have to do with us working this job so we can get all this work done? And he laughed and I laughed and we just went on. And then later on, we went fishing one day, him and I, because we had common ground. We both loved to fish. And we were down in Burlington, North Carolina. And I remember going fishing with him and the Ku Klux Klan was having a rally. And we were going and he said, no, we don't want to go this way. And he, he took me another way and we went fishing. And I don't know, Bill. So I guess he may have been a white supremacist. I don't know. Because what I've learned is that people are very complicated. I'm very complicated. It was, what, it was a time in my life when I hated all white people. And it's like, is, am I a black supremacist? You know what I mean? And when you start thinking about stuff like that, I think that we all, not we all, because that's a big statement. I can only talk about Odell. At certain points in my life, I was not the same person I am now. Once Jesus Christ came into my life, I wasn't perfect, but my heart started softening to some of those experiences I had at an early age that had a lot to do with white people. And a lot of those cases doing integration, it always was negative. It was just negative. And as a child, you're like, why are these people treating me like this? So what you do, you know, you just get a resistance. It's almost like a cat. And I'll be quiet because, you know, Baptist preacher, I could talk a lot. <laughs> it's like a cat on the porch. If you kick that cat, then nobody don't even have to be around when you kick the cat. 
But the next time you come walking in the yard and everybody's on the porch and the cat's on the porch, when the cat sees you, the cat will get up and leave. And someone's going to ask the question. Usually grandma's going to say, what did you do to that cat? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And grandma has enough wisdom to know, oh, you did something to that cat. So a lot of times, Bill, um, I don't know if I've met a white supremacist, but I know I've met some people that didn't like black folk. And after we got to know each other, I go with the premise that it's hard to hate up close. It's just hard to hate someone up close when you get to know them and get to know their story. But a lot of times we don't, we don't put in the work. We don't put in the work to get to know people and get to know their story. Well, uh, I have met one, but I didn't realize it. He was the leader of Proud Boys in North Carolina. He was a member of our hunt camp. He's in jail now. And uh, at our hunt camp, they uh, actually, the Proud Boys actually did uh, maneuvers uh, in training. And we, I didn't realize it uh, until later on, uh, after he was arrested, all this stuff started coming out. Um, so, but, you know, I remember that we never, I never had a deep conversation with him. Uh, he, he was very strong in his viewpoints, extremely strong. It was his way or nothing. And there was no, no gray area. And a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours, Jim Rogers, who is a retired JAG, uh, judge from the Navy, uh, pretty smart guy. He tried reasoning with him and he couldn't. So, uh, Jim decided the best thing to do is whenever that guy was up there, he wouldn't be up there. So I don't know. Uh, I've never had a, a discussion with people um, about it. So what uh, the reason I ask is Calvin, Calvin has an interesting story about that, but I, I want to, I think we're going to get into that, but I'd like to have him share uh, Calvin to come in here and share a little bit of his background uh, and his history. And then we, we want to spend some time talking about your ministry. Okay. Okay. And, and let's do that first. And then we'll get into the other stuff uh, after that. So Calvin, Introduce yourself, tell us your backstory and what you're doing now with your ministry. Okay. Well, I'm Kelvin Pierce. And I guess the interesting part of the story really is how I grew up. So my father was William uh, Pierce, and he was the uh, founder and the leader of one of the most preeminent hate groups in the United States, actually in the world. It was called the National Alliance. Um, and he was basically considered the most influential and the most dangerous white supremacist or neo-Nazi in North America for over a 30 year period. Wow. And his true infamy really came with the book that he wrote called the Turner Diaries, which to, to, you know, this day is considered the Bible of the racist right. And it's basically a story about a race war in the United States that culminates with the violent overthrow of the U.S. government, you know, in an effort to create a white, whites only homeland in the United States. And um, Timothy McVeigh, the gentleman that did the bombing of the Oklahoma City building in 1995, um, you know, was a big fan of that book. And he did declare after that bombing that the Turner Diaries was his inspiration for that bombing. Wow. Um, and so, you know, I grew up with that man and basically was taught, uh, you know, a lot about white supremacy and what the beliefs were. And basically one of the first lessons that I really learned in life was that whites were superior and that non-whites were inferior and even subhuman. You know, I was taught that black people were subhuman. 
Um, I remember when I was a youngster in school, elementary school, uh, looking at a black classmate and just, you know, wondering like, what, what must it feel like to be subhuman? Like they must feel like, and I was fascinated. I was afraid. I was interested. Um, but, you know, I also learned over the years to develop a hatred for anything that was different than I was, because that's what I was taught. And, uh, it engenders fear. Um, and so I lived with that, you know, by the time I left home, when I was 18 years old, I was, you know, I was a severely damaged person. You know, I was also abused by my father from the time I was about two years old until I finally stopped it when I was about 16 years old. Um, and it was, you know, the physical abuse, mental abuse, psychological abuse, and it was almost on a daily basis. And, um, you know, by the time I left home, I was terribly shy. I was, um, I felt utterly worthless. I basically couldn't look anybody else in the eye and hold their gaze uh, for fear that they would see right through me and realize how worthless I was. And, you know, I also held a deep-seated hatred for non-whites. Um, I mostly kept that to myself, but it was a tape that was running through my head constantly. And it wasn't until I went to college at Virginia Tech and started meeting uh, people from all over the world and starting to get to know them um, before I started challenging the beliefs that my father taught me. But it took me decades to begin the true healing process of basically erasing those tapes and writing new tapes in my head that were based more on love instead of fear and hatred. Uh, and one of the pivotal moments for me probably was, you know, the adoption of my two daughters from the former Soviet Republic of Georgia. I mean, the moment I saw those two girls for the very first time when they were two months old, I, I became a different person. I changed you know, almost like at a cellular level. And I think that's when the healing really started. You know, after uh, some years of raising my daughters is when I came up with the idea of trying to give back in return for the two greatest gifts I felt like I've ever received in, in my life. And that was my two daughters from Georgia. So I founded a uh, charitable foundation called the Divine Child Foundation. Um, and started working with an orphanage in Georgia. And then over the years, that grew into, you know, a, a foundation that now supports several children's houses and a couple of counseling centers in Georgia. And I travel over there, you know, several times a year and uh, administer to that uh, foundation. Wow. That's, that's quite a journey. I'd say God had you on. You were talking about your daughters that you adopted changed your fiber. And when you saw him, you just knew, you just knew that was where you, I, my, I adopted a girl from Poland, from Białystok, and we went to the orphanage. It was a big orphanage and uh, there were a lot of infants. They put us, took us in a big room with, I don't know, 60, 60 beds, you know, the kid, with their infants, nine months or less. Uh, Jessa at the time was six months. They said, pick one, pick two, pick whoever you want. They're yours. And I, I, I wasn't quite ready for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was like a little overwhelming. You just don't pick a human being. Yeah. The, the uh, so I, I 
quickly thought, I said, okay, how am I going to process this? How am I going to handle this? And I said, I'm going to hold all 60 babies. Hmm. And I'm going to let God tell me which one. And when I held Jessa, I knew exactly she was the one. Wow. And that's, that's the daughter we have today. Wow. I mean, for me, I did, you know, for most of my young adult life, I did not want to have children. I was terrified at the idea of ending up like my father was. Um, and I was also terrified of the idea of propagating my genes because I, you know, felt so worthless and, you know, I was, I was sick. And so the idea of having my own children and trying to be a healthy father was so foreign to me. I mean, it took me well into my thirties before I would even entertain the idea. But at that point it was like, I'm not going to have my own. I'll adopt someone else. And that's really what started that process. And, and for me, I was still, you know, I was terrified. And because my father treated me the way he did and my twin brother, yeah, I had some girl cousins that he would get down on the floor with and he would tickle them and play with them and laugh with them. He never once did that with me. So I thought maybe it was a gender thing. So I insisted that I was going to adopt girls and not boys. I, I didn't know, but I wasn't willing to take the chance. Wow. And is your brother still alive? How's he doing? Yes, he is. And he's doing well. Good. That's that's a great story. Uh, your Your ministry, can you give us the website again in the name again? divinechildfoundation.org divinechildfoundation.org folks we'll put this on our website so if you want to contribute to Calvin's ministry you can you can click I'm sure he's got a donate button on there and uh, and uh, and so you know how we found you do you want to know this backstory how we found you sure um, we're good friends uh, with the rabbis in town um, I was born and raised Catholic and now I'm evangelical. Uh, and, uh, Rabbi Joshua and Ben Gideon is, uh, at Cape Cod with his wife, Rebecca, who's also a rabbi. And, uh, she emailed me, she says, you've got to listen to this story. And I guess there was a rabbi that did a story about you, uh, or t- turned you on to a CBS reporter or something. And there's a, the rabbi wrote a story about that. And then there was a link to your, your documentary, your video, and, uh, you've written a book, correct? What's the name of the book? Yes, I've written a book about what it was like growing up with my father and what he was like and, you know, how I went through the healing process. Uh, and it's called Sins of My Father, Growing Up with America's Most uh, Dangerous White Supremacist. Yeah, I'm going to I want to read that. I'm going to do that. The uh, So Rebecca sent us sent me this. I think it was either a text or an email. And I forwarded it on to my wife and, and Odell and, and I watched it and I said, we got to see if we can get Calvin on. So last Friday, I, I have a company. I was teaching a systematic troubleshooting class from 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. on a Friday. So it's long. <laughs> and, uh, and we had a break. And I read this and I said, I'm going to look up his his number. And uh, and I found your, your phone number on the website. So I called it and I asked to talk to Calvin and, and what I wanted to do. And it turns out it was Calvin who I was talking to. <laughs> Yes. And he, he said, yes, I'd love to come on your podcast and, and talk, which I thought was very nice because he didn't know me from Adam. And uh, so I appreciate you, you trusting us enough to, to let uh, Odell and I kind of have a after, an hour with you and talk about your life and your ministry. 
Uh, so that's the backstory. So Rebecca Ben Gideon, if you're listening or Joshua, it's all because of you guys that we're doing this. And uh, now you and I have been talking. I want to let the good looking black man who's lost 51 pounds talk next. Good. Good. Listen, I'm just sitting here mesmerized because Calvin, I've heard of the Turner diary before, but never read it. Where did, I'm going to ask you a couple questions, not questioning you like you're in a witness stand, but questioning for a better understanding because I am fascinated with your story. So when you think about the Turner Diary, do you know where the title came from for your father? Well, my father, you know, when he was running his, his uh, hate organization, did a lot of writing. And so he would write a monthly publication. Uh, it was called Attack. And it was basically geared mostly toward younger white people to try to radicalize them and get them into the white supremacy movement. And, you know, he, he would write a lot of stories about white supremacy and the, you know, the genetic history of the white race and, you know, Northern European history and stuff like that. And a lot of these young white people weren't really interested in that. And so he was complaining to a fellow white supremacist who was also a writer. And that guy told him, he said, well, what you need to do is you need to write fiction and you need to make it really simple. And so my dad came up with the idea to write one chapter uh, about a guy named Earl Turner, who was a fictional character, who was basically a soldier in the, you know, um, race war, uh, a white you know, soldier in the race war, and he wrote diary entries, and he published one entry each month, and it became so popular, he wow. decided to compile them all and put them in the book, and then he published the book. Wow. So, so let me ask a question, then. Uh, Earl Turner was the race war. Was the race war against Black people, Jewish people? Yeah, it was against all non-whites, but it was specifically targeted against the U.S. government, especially uh, people in the, you know, like the Senate or Congress that were passing bills or supporting racial integration or immigration or anything like that. And basically, Earl Turner was a fictional character that came out of my dad's head that were, was able to do things that my dad fantasized that he wished he could do, which was basically to uh, murder interracial couples, uh, murder prominent Jewish people, and murder prominent uh, government officials that supported you know, the Jewish agenda, which he believed was to bring down the white race by mixing whites with non-whites in an effort to dilute and therefore weaken the white race. That was the premise of all of my dad's beliefs. So the lesson, thank you so much. The lessons that you learned on grandma's porch or at your father's knees, you mentioned something that you said when I, you grew up, got exposed to black folk or saw the first black person, you said, how does it feel to be subhuman? But you mentioned fear and hatred in both. What did you hate about a black person like me and what did you fear about a black person like me? And was it different for your father for black females versus black males or black was black was black? Well, it depends on the behavior of the, of the particular person. Um, but mostly it was black was black was black as far as he was concerned. But, it, you know, the fear part was 
I think it's an inherent human trait to initially be afraid of something that's different than you. So especially, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, you know, the civil rights movement was going on. So there were, um, you know, the demonstrations, some riots that were happening in Washington, D.C., which we live really close to. Um, And that, you know, when people already were racist and white supremacist, that just engendered more fear and more hatred in them because it made in their eyes, black people look even more different and more dangerous than than they were when they weren't demanding rights, when they weren't protesting and demonstrating and marching in the streets, things like that. And so the hatred and fear, they're pretty much one in the same. I mean, you know, as far as far as I'm concerned, I think there's only two real emotions, love and fear. And then fear comes in many, many, many different flavors, you know, and hate and aversion is, is one of those. And I believe that hate is a mental disease. I, be- I believe that it is a disease of the mind and that it is the product of a deluded mind. And a lot of that comes from because people are taught to hate. Yes. I don't believe that people are born with hate in their hearts, but they are taught to hate. It's passed on from generation to generation. So do you think that your grandfather or someone taught your father how to hate? Because obviously being a writer, and I don't want to assume anything, I'm a writer and I'm not the smartest guy in the world or the sharpest you know, tool in the toolbox. But obviously your daddy intellectually, he understood intellectually the power of words. And so hatred is not something that was, in this case, dealing with someone who was quote unquote uh, unlearned or... Um, some of the bias, prejudice, and stereotypes that we call each other in the South. So dad was very intellectual and understood the power of words. How do you think he got infected with hate? I think that it was a very complex issue that was going on with him. Uh, Number one, I don't think he was mentally well. Number two, I think he was looking for some sort of escape from his responsibilities of being a father and a husband and a breadwinner for the family. Um, and so one of the things that he did was he started doing a lot of reading. Um, and for some reason, he, he gravitated fairly quickly to books about um, government, you know, and he read about the Bolshevik Revolution. He read about Northern European history. He read Mein Kampf. And then, you know, he started seeing things happening in the United States in in the 60s, when the civil rights movement first started, um, jazz music started becoming popular, um, the Vietnam War started, and all of those things fermented in his mind to where he got to the point where he really started to believe that blacks were a threat to his existence and that blacks were being used by Jews as an effort to, again, mix with whites and to weaken the white race. And so it's it's not a simple thing. It's a very complex, for him, it was a very complex intellectual thing. Because when he was a young, young man, he didn't have that hatred. I mean, he certainly learned from his mother that, you know, whites were superior, but that didn't engender hatred in him until he became an adult. Uh, interesting. You say he learned from his mother. You would think one may learn from his father, but that's interesting. 
Uh, my family grew up uh, originated from this small town in South Carolina called Abbeville, South Carolina. Abbeville prides itself on being the birthplace and the deathbed of the Confederacy. And we learned how to deal with white folks. White folks learned how to deal with black people. And I'm sure in those days, it was a subservient type situation with blacks to the white race. But at the same time though, relationships happen because back to my basic premise, it's hard to hate up close. It's hard to hate when that black mother is a wet nurse and she's uh, having her black breast nipple in the white baby's mouth um, and the white baby is uh, sucking milk from the black breast. Would your dad disagree with that? Or that was just part of the way it was at one time between white, black race, as long as the black race was subservient to the white race? Well, when he was a young man, you know, he would have been just like that. You know, you exist together. You have a belief that you're superior, but there's no issues in, in, in fulfilling the roles that you believe you fill. There was no adversarial relationships. The reason why I said it was his mother is because um, my grandfather was killed when my dad was eight years old. So he really didn't get. And, and before that, he was an alcoholic. And that's that's, you know, what led to his death when my dad was eight years old. So I don't think my dad really had much uh, interaction of any quality with his father. But, you know, once my dad became radicalized and established his belief system, he would have been absolutely disgusted and abhorred, you know, the idea of a white baby, you know, sucking from a black breast. And he would that. Yeah, that would have been absolutely terrible in his mind. Wow. You know, I've been asking you a lot of questions and thank you so much for your kindness and answering the questions. What questions do you have for me as a black man growing up in the South? Any questions for me before we turn it back over to Bill? Um, well, I mean, I, you know, your ministry, uh, you know, I'm a, 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 an ordained minister myself. Um, um, for me, it was a healing thing. So, I mean, did you feel like you got healing from that as well? I, I suspect you did. I, I did. I did because I had hatred in my heart. I hated all white people as a young boy growing up because some of the things that um, you talked about, I received on a recipient. I was a recipient of those things. And as a child, you're like, why does this person hate me? Why, why is it systemic? And I hadn't do anything. And I'm hated just because I show up. So anything that attacks you, you usually try to protect yourself from it. During those years, we were going into integration, uh, school integration, and that was rough. That, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, in the late 60s and early 70s, it was so hard. And I remember that, you know, the N-word was one of those things that a lot of white kids would say. And the teachers were like, they're part of a systemic in such a way, not all, not all, but some. But at the same time, you know, it was just hard. And I remember one teacher in particular worked very hard to put me in the special ed class. And I thank God that that didn't happen. So that's how I developed hate. And over the years, it kind of dissipated, but it was there. And I talk about it in one of my most recent books. And it surprised a lot of people who know me. They're like, oh my God, Cleveland, I didn't know you hated all white people. But I just think that being honest and transparent, it runs some people away from you. 
but also other people are attracted to you and just thank God that you're not the person that you once was. And that's kind of how I look at it. Uh, Bill's one of my best friends who happened to be white. Um, but at the same time, we have experiences. We go places together and things that he takes for granted is not always that way with me. But at the same time, I don't think that every issue or incident is race is about race. I think a lot about it is about humans. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with how you feel about yourself. I think that if you truly love yourself, that it, I don't think it's possible to hate other people. But I think, you know, when you feel bad, you feel worthless, you feel afraid, you feel disenfranchised, it's really easy to point the figure at somebody else and blame them for what's going on inside. And I think a lot of hatred comes from that issue alone. Any other questions for the good looking black guy? <laughs> no, that's it for now. Okay. You can Thank you. get us more. You get, you get a second run at him, Calvin. Okay. Calvin, it's some great, great wisdom you're, you're giving us. And we appreciate that. I, I got a couple of questions. Um, you know, the name of the show is common ground show. Do you think uh, blacks or Jews can find common ground with a white supremacist? It depends on the white supremacist. It really does because you know, white supremacists come in all different kinds, all different levels of intensity and belief. And um, so it would be entirely dependent on the white supremacists, just like Odell was talking about, um, or I guess it was you, you were talking about the guy in that hunting camp. The hunt camp, yep. Yeah, so it, uh, it really just depends. And I think there are a lot of closet white supremacists who, you know, you know, closely hold those beliefs to themselves, but they don't like practice it in public. And they do develop relationships with, uh, you know, people of the other race and tolerate that. And yeah, it, it's totally dependent on the person. Yeah, I think you're right. Because, you know, I've got some friends that I know that I I've keep inviting Odell to come and do some stuff with us. And Odell's willing, but they always have an excuse. You know, it didn't occur to me. I just thought, oh, they're busy or something's happening or something. And I realized, I said, I wonder if it's because of Odell's skin color that they're not willing to do things together with us. So I think I think you're right. I think you're right on that. Are there any telltale signs of a white supremacist? I think you mentioned earlier, you, you, some people keep it close to their chest so you can't tell. Well, I mean, in this day and age, a lot of that, you know, white supremacist acting out, you know, happens online. I think, you know, I think that, you know, we have had latent racism in our country, actually in our society forever. And it, it's just never gone away. And, you know, unfortunately, with the political climate that we're in right now and, you know, the big, you know, polarization that's happening in our country, uh, I think a lot more people are feeling more enabled or, you know, they feel like, acting out or speaking out their racist beliefs is more unassailable than it used to be. I mean, certainly if you see some white guy with a swastika tattoo, um, you know, with swords and stuff like that, um, you know, Nazi memorabilia on their body, I think that's a pretty good telltale sign, you know, and if they, you know, marched in Charlottesville in 2017, you know, things like that. But other than that, no, there are no real telltale signs. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. I, I was listening to you talk about uh, January 6th and uh, you said, you know, you're, you're glad your father's not alive because he was so charismatic. 
uh, that the factions of the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and all those other factions are just that, they're factions, sir. But he was powerful enough and charismatic enough, he could bring them all together into a much more powerful form. Well, I mean, you know, when I was witnessing what was happening on January the 6th, you know, I mean, at first it was, you know, it was shocking. And so you didn't really have time to really formulate your thoughts about it. You were just like witnessing it and going, oh, my God, you know, what's happening here? Um, but, you know, when I saw the gallows, you know, that that gallows that was was put up on the Capitol grounds, and then I heard what they were chanting about hanging Mike Pence and, you know, going after Nancy Pelosi and other people like that, you know, I believe that I really believed that if they had a unified leadership and a better plan, that they would have actually murdered those people. They would have gotten in there and they would have never stopped and they would have murdered those people. And I think the only reason they didn't go that far is because they were not, you know, in one cohesive group. It was a bunch of factions that came together. And I just had a nightmarish thought that, well, what if my dad had been part of this? You know, what if my dad had been, you know, bringing this whole group of people together in one, you know, spearhead toward that ultimate goal or somebody else other than my dad that was charismatic, that was a great leader? What if that person existed at that time? I think the outcome would have been very different. Yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. And, you know, white supremacy is also an issue in Europe. I mean, it's it's. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, we don't hear much in Asia, but I suspect there's some of that there. Um, it's probably all over the world. You know, you said it earlier. It's a lot easier to hate than to love because love, as easy as it sounds, does take effort because you got to get to know the person. You got to want to know the person. When you hate somebody, you don't need to get to know them. No. You don't need to understand them. You can just, you can hate them. And like you said, social media allows them to hate them from a distance and be uh, hidden behind that. So they don't even have to be uh, confronted face to face. You know, I, I see some visuals of people holding the uh, Confederate flag and screaming at another person over something. And, uh, and I'm like, man, how do you, how do you communicate when you're shouting? How do you communicate when you're angry? We don't. You, 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 we've all lost our temper and we know what that's like. And you feel you feel pretty bad about it after you go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I was upset, rightfully so, but I shouldn't have done that. And, uh, you know, Jesus lost his temper and, and went in and kind of tore the temple up, the temple grounds where they're trading things. Uh, but there's not too many instances where you see that with him. He didn't hate the Pharisees. He just thought they were, what did he call them, Odell? He had a, he called them, he had a term in the Bible. He called them vapor, vipers. Yes. Vipers. Yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Bill, let me ask a question for all three of us. When you think about what, what people say is the oncoming race war, it's like, what race war and why is there a war? And if people are preparing for the race war, then as a black person, I'm looking around, meaning they must be preparing for me. And I don't know anything about a war. And when you look at Steve Bannon and some of the reports that's coming out, Bannon is, I don't know if he's a charismatic leader. However, I because I don't listen to him online or anything. However, I think he's a strategic person. Is it is it the fact that a black person and a Democrat 
or race doesn't go into political, like all Democrats, it's like black people, Jewish people. So Kevin, how deep does this thing really go? You know, cause I remember Karl Rove, Karl Rove was just, I mean, he was brilliant. You know, I didn't agree with everything he did, but he was brilliant. Bannon is a different type of person. And obviously he's very intelligent, but it's different. Can you help? Can you help explain to me, the audience, as a black person, what's what's going on that maybe I need to be aware of? Well, first of all, I certainly don't think that Steve Bannon is that charismatic leader. Oh, I don't wow. think I don't see him as having much substance. Um, I agree with you, Calvin. I agree. Yeah, I just don't. I mean, I have watched him speak, and I was surprised at how simplistic and no substance there. Um, so yeah. He, he's just a, an instigator um, and, and an actor um, and, a, and a huge ego, I think. Um, but, I, you know, for me, it's, it's more than a race war. It's a culture war. It's a, it's a war of, you know, deep-seated conservative values versus uh, values of change. And I think there's a lot of people that are so afraid of change and they're so, they're just clenching so tightly to their idea of the way things should be. They're not willing to accept the idea of change or progress or progression. And so it's more than race. You know, race is just one of the symptoms. I think the true disease is, you know, a, a huge uh, cultural divide that's developing in this country, in our society. And does that divide, uh, the response to that is that people have to kill people who look like me? Or is it, because I thought, and, and I can't, I haven't gotten that deep in it because maybe I'm just naive to some things. However, do you think the whole idea of President Barack Obama being elected, the first black president really just put fear into people's heart or the fact that the browning of America, because you mentioned Charlottesville, I think they said Jews will not replace them, blood and soil, that kind of stuff. And I know that's code word for a lot of different things. So just want to build Odell and kept, want to deal with all three. President Barack Obama being elected, a black man being the president of the United States, that's one thing. Uh, the whole browning of America, uh, replacing the white race, that's another thought. And the last one, Jews will not replace us and blood and soil. Can y'all help explain that to me? I think I know, but I don't want to assume anything. Well, I'll take the Obama one. Um, I think I think in the case of Obama, it might have been black, the black issue, but I don't think it was as much as it would have been years ago. But I think what his his issues became with the Trump type of people, I guess I'd call them, is that he never stood up to, at least in their viewpoint, stood up to Iraq, I mean, Iran, uh, China, uh, the uh, NATO, uh, the European Union, and he was just giving away the house. We weren't uh, being treated fair. We were paying the bills, but not getting our vote. And it's, it's so that's, that's, that's my viewpoint, I think, why uh, people disliked Obama, uh, the, the ones that disliked him. But it's interesting, you know, um, I'm going to use a different name, Jesse Helms. Now, Jesse Helms was a senator in North Carolina. I don't know if he was a racist or not, 
but he he certainly had a strong viewpoint on things and one of them was united nations he didn't he stopped the funding because they didn't get the votes they didn't you know all this stuff he he was i think we had a guy on us on on this show that talked about he was in college and he was sent over in college to jesse helms they were doing um uh, feeding people over in high, high point, the students, the kids during their lunch when they're in school. Well, when they were out of school, they didn't get lunch. A lot of them didn't have food. So his fraternity was the ones that decided they were going to go and try and get lunch money or so they can feed these kids during uh, the summer once. <clears throat> so they went over to see, he went over to, he was, he was the fellow sent over to see Jesse Helms, Jesse Helms, um, said, you know, we can't keep affording to feed people like this. They have to go out and get jobs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he was trying to explain that, you know, it's difficult to get a job and some of them have jobs and, you know, he's going through that. And he said, you know, at least Senator, could you, could you make it a gradual change uh, so that we don't eliminate all the food at once? And his response was, you know, you ever have a coon dog? He says, if you got a coon dog, you're going to cut its tail off. You don't do it in pieces. You cut it all at once. He says, that's how I view this. When I heard that, I said, I can see the guy that was at the hunt camp saying it the same way. <laughs> no compassion, no understanding, just the black and white in the way it goes. And so I think there are a lot of people that have that black and white image that Obama rubbed the wrong way. And I think they came to the surface after when Trump came and, and that ushered Trump in. But there were also people that didn't like the way the United States was being treated and they blamed Obama on that. Uh, so that, that coalition came together. I don't think that coalition exists today. I think Trump still got his 20%, but I don't think there's, there's a lot of the folks that would have voted for him uh, won't do it again, particularly after January 6th. Do you think people ask me all the time, do I think president, previous president Donald Trump is racist. And I'm like, I don't think so. I see him as an opportunist. What do you gentlemen think? Calvin, I'll let you jump on that one. I think he was absolutely a racist, um, um, just based on his history um, and the things that he's done. Um, but I think that that was just a small part of his personality. Um, as far as Obama is concerned, I agree with a lot of the things you said, but I will tell you that I am absolutely positive that there are I, there were are a certain subset of people in the United States that were absolutely horrified and angry that they had a black president. I think that there was a the beginning of a massive swing of the pendulum in our country when Obama was elected president. I think Obama was an incredibly intelligent man, really well-spoken, a really gifted speaker, a really good man, probably one of the best quality human beings that we've had in the office of president for as long as I can remember. I think that his failing really was is that he wasn't a great leader. And that's what we have, what we lack in the office of president and in our Congress is we don't have great leaders. We don't have people that have the ability to bring this country together and truly make it great again. Um, 
And I think that's the problem. You know, I think our political system is broken. You know, I think it's corrupt, you know, based on all the lobbying that goes on and things like that. And I think that, you know, until that gets addressed, um, I'm not sure, you know, that this country is going to get better or do well. I think we just need a really great leader in the office of president to bring this country together. I agree with that, Kelvin. I do. Because if if you get a really great leader there, uh, people will vote in the party that will support them and they'll get things done. You're here in North Carolina. Uh, our Republicans have the majority of the House and the Senate. I mean, super majority. They can override the vetoes. And uh, we were just voted the number one state in the union for, for business. business. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen overnight. That that took years of building because when these the Republican and I'm not picking Republicans over Democrat, just those people that did that and uh, inherited a ton, billions of dollars in debt when they started. And now we've got billions of dollars of surplus. And yeah, now granted, are we paying our teachers enough? No. Are we paying, you know, are we doing certain things enough? No. We've got a lot more things to do, but you got you got to take small bites of the elephant. You can't eat the whole thing at once. And, you know, you you can argue over should we pay teachers more or should we have Medicare? You know, that's a that's a democratic debate that you have as a uh as an intellectual challenge, emotional challenge, but uh, something that is, you know, arguable, people can get worked up on it. But uh, and then when you're done, you do your vote and everybody get in line and support it. So, you know, I I think, you know, the uh, I've seen systems work. I worked in the House of Representatives for uh, probably two, three years as a congressional aide. And I actually lived with the congressman. And that was when Democrats and Republicans actually hung out together. The kids played soccer together. They would go out to dinner together with the wives. Yeah, they would they would argue during the sessions, but then they'd stop over at Charlie Vanek, that was the congressman, and sit down and have a bourbon with him in his office or go out go out to dinner with him. We got to get back to that. We got to get back to it. And we can. This is a great country. This is the greatest country in the world. And we can get back to it. The, what we've got now are are, you know, some, some things that have developed that are, you know, I kind of call them, you know, how you pick up a bad habit. Well, we got a bad habit. <laughs> Our bad habit is we don't, we don't civilly talk to each other. We, we victimize each other and, and condemn each other. So we got to get through, out of that habit and start uh, lifting each other up for the good of the country and become true statesmen. Oh, there's my political speech. I'll stop now. The, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, was just sitting here thinking about it and just really appreciate both of you gentlemen's honesty. I remember when uh, doing the inaugural parade with President Obama and we were just so happy as black folk, we were just crying and just happy that we have, man, can you believe it? We live to see, we have a black president in the United States of America uh, while America is changing. And I remember doing the inaugural parade and him and Michelle got out of the car and we, as black folk, we yelling at the TV, get back in the car, get back in the car, they are gonna kill you. You know, and it's like, who's the they? Who's the they? And, and is that just to Kevin's point, how we feel about ourselves that they're going to assassinate the first black president in the United States of America? And now you think, and, and I really want to know, but don't really want to know how many death threats that he really received. And I agree with you that he was a fantastic 
human being, a good person. I don't know. So I don't know if you all felt the same way as the majority of Black people I know felt that when they got outside, outside the car, it's like, please get back in the car. Please get back in the car. They're going to kill you. It's like, mm-hmm. who's the they, Odell? Or is that just in my mind? Well, I felt that way when I saw it. Calvin, uh, you know, when I was looking at your video that you had done, a uh, documentary, and I was looking at some of the comments, there's still a lot of people that don't like you and comment <laughs> negative. Man, I was yeah. like, holy cow. Yeah, there's... There's a lot of hatred out there. There, There's no doubt about it. Um, But, you know, it takes a lot of courage, you know, to be vulnerable and to put love out there instead of fear. Um, And, you know, for me, if I could just help one other person that used to feel the way I used to feel, which was horrible. um, If I could just help one other person that might just want some help getting out of that hole, then I, you know, I think it's all worthwhile. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The uh, uh, do you get death threats? Do you get them? I do not. No. Good. No. Good. And you know, wh- what did you believe when you were younger, growing up, before you changed? Well, I mean, it all started with that. I felt like I was worthless, and I felt like I was bad. Uh, I felt like I was wrong, and then you know, I was susceptible to my father's belief system. But you know, I believed what my dad taught me, and he basically taught me that. Jews and non-whites were responsible for all the ills of our society. And I also, you know, would recognize the charge that I would get in my body when I hated something else. It was like a, an addiction. And it's a momentary elevation of putting yourself above somebody else. So you get a momentary sense of feeling better. Because if you feel like crap, you feel worthless, and you can find somebody that's beneath you, then you can lift yourself up for a moment. But again, it's just like an addiction, you know, it's a momentary fix. And in the long run, it's actually worse for you. Um, You know, it's like being addicted to drugs or alcohol or something like that. Hate, I believe it's the same way. Um, And it just made me a miserable person on the inside and miserable to the people that were around me. You know, it didn't get to the point Um, that I was willing to even recognize it or do anything about it until I finally just got so sick and tired of feeling sick and tired and said, you know, I I have to do something about this. Wow. Wow. That's, that's quite a testimony there. The, uh, you know, I had finally got sick and tired of being sick and tired. I think, uh, well, that says a lot and you're right. It is an addiction. Because you get that rush. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, you know, the other way to, to, to get when you're feeling not good about yourself is uh, drugs and alcohol because it numbs it. Yes. Yeah. So you get used to, oh, I don't have to feel it because I'm drunk or high. And so you're numb on it. And what, both, all three of those destroy your body. Absolutely. It destroy you, you know. Well, we're getting near the end here, and we always ask our guests, how do you find common ground with uh, people that aren't like you or the same as you? So that's going to be a question we're going to ask and see if Odell has anything before we let you answer that question. Yeah, um, I, I just need to know, how do the listening audience get a copy of your book? Is it on Amazon? And I think you said the title was Sins of My Fathers Growing Up with the Most Dangerous White Supremacy in the World. 
It's uh, sins of my father growing up with America's most dangerous white supremacist. And yes, it is on Amazon. Um, and, you know, you can buy, um, you know, a print copy or an electronic copy. Mm-hmm. Was dad proud of his status of being the most dangerous white supremacist in the world? Was he in America? Was he proud of that? Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And he, uh, he worked very hard at it. He basically sacrificed his family. You know, he, I asked him one time, as a matter of fact, after I left home and I had been in college several years and I went back, I never stopped trying to develop a normal father-son relationship with him, but I was never able to. But I did ask him one time, I was like, dad, why did you do what you did? And in my mind, I was asking him, how could you turn away from your family at such a young age and turn toward hate and stay there for the rest of your life? And I saw him, you know, like intellectually ponder my question. And he turned and looked at me and very thoughtfully, he said, Kelvin, I did the only responsible thing I could do. And that was it. That was his only answer. I waited for more, but that was the only thing he would tell me. But sometime, not always, I found, because I get invited from time to time to preach at all white churches, it is, it's always a very different experience. Do you think sometime the white supremacy or the politics become our religion? And is it subtle in God's house? Or sometimes it's like, Odell, you don't understand. You have no idea because burning a cross is one thing, but inside the church, is that it is our hatred part of our religion in some cases? Well, I mean, the hatred, like I said before, is a disease. So for a lot of people, it's 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 part of who they are, wow. and they can't turn it off. You know, it's it's you know, it's just like you can't decide one moment you're not going to be mentally ill, right? And then go back to that mental illness. So you can play nice, but it doesn't stop your belief system. It doesn't change your belief system. So, no, I mean, I truly do believe to every bit of my soul that hate is a disease. Wow. Well, you've you seen know. it firsthand. You've seen it up close and firsthand. You know, well, I love what he said, though. He said you could play nice. Odell, they play nice with you. They tolerate you, but they play nice with you. But don't think for a minute, my friend. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> They're going to talk about you after the service. You know, whatever, you're too loud, you're too emotional, blase, blase, blase. It's interesting. You know, life is something, man. Life is something. Indeed. Calvin, uh, The Sins of My Father, uh, you know, do you have a section in there that, uh, of the book you can share with us that kind of stands out in your mind? Uh, for me, that probably, you know, of course, the history of what it was like growing up with my dad. But for me... You know, the part that really, really speaks to where I'm at now is when I describe what it was like when I first started working with the kids at the orphanage. So, you know, when I first started doing that, you know, I encountered 40 or 50 kids in this terrible house with all the windows broken, no heating system, no plumbing system, you know, freezing cold on the inside. And I had these grandeurs of, oh, I'm going to go in here and I'm going to help these kids and the kids are going to be appreciative and stuff. And, you know, the first thing that happened were, you know, these kids were not happy. 
they were angry. They had been abandoned by their parents or some of them didn't have parents or their parents were in jail or they were abusing them horribly. And these kids wouldn't let me in, you know, and I tried to like make eye contact with them and smile at them and they would glare at me or they would turn away. And it brought up all those past feelings of rejection that I experienced on a daily basis as a kid. And it made me feel bad. And, but it was like a, a, you know, real moment for me because I was like, wait, you know, Kelvin, this isn't about you. You know, this is about them. This is about how they feel. And so I made it a goal at that point to just keep doing it. Just keep helping them, keep looking at them, keep loving them. And I just wanted those kids to know that there was one person in the world that loved them. And I tell you what, kid by kid, those barriers came down. Some kids took longer than others, but every single one of those kids, after working with them for a period of time, those barriers all came down and they would look at me and they would smile. And, you know, we developed love between each other. And that is, I think that's the most powerful thing in the world. I agree. I agree. You made the kids resilient on your love form. They, they had a, by being resilient, they felt secure. Yeah. And their love helped continue my healing process. Yeah. It goes two ways. Absolutely. Yes. It goes two absolutely, ways. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. That's a powerful story. I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us. Thank you. Uh, let's give one last time your uh, ministry and a website, and then we'll ask you about the common ground. Um, it's called the Divine Child Foundation. And the website is divinechildfoundation.org. .org. Thank you, Calvin. So, Calvin, how do you find Common Ground? By doing this, what we're doing right now. I mean, I am still not a very sociable person. I'm still pretty shy. And so for me to work on telling my story, trying to help people, trying to give some hope, uh, and to, um, make myself vulnerable, you know, I feel like that's finding common ground. I mean, I, the first time I told this story was several years ago and I was scared to death. I was scared of public speaking and I was going to tell my story about how I felt about black people as a kid. And most of the time in, in this audience, which was a rotary club, because I'm a member of the rotary club. Most of the members there were white, but my story was advertised and I saw some black people walk into the audience that were not members. And I was like, oh no, maybe I can't say the things that I wanted to say because I might offend these black people. But then I was like, no, wait, I need to tell my story. And I told my story and I had some of these black people coming up to me and telling me that was one of the most powerful stories I've ever heard. Thank you for saying what you said. And you actually helped me. You actually helped me a lot by telling your story the way you did. Even though I talked about how I hated black people when I was a kid and when I was a young adult. And so that's how I try to find common ground. Wow. Do you have uh, any black friends? I do. Yes, mm -hmm. I do. I don't have many friends because I'm not a very social person. But, you know, I'm also a business owner. So I've had black employees and subcontractors and stuff like that. So, yes. Very good. Very good. Well, Calvin, it's it's been a, a delight to have you on the show. 
Uh, we're, we're so proud of your, what you've done and your book you've written and your ministry. Uh, if there's anything Odell and I can do to help, you just let us know. And if, uh, yeah, awesome. It was my pleasure. Thank you, guys, both of you, Odell, Bill. It's a pleasure meeting you. It's a pleasure talking to you. Same here, my friend. Same here. Find Bill and Odell online at thecommonground.show. This podcast is a production of BG Ad Group. Darren Sutherland, executive producer. Jeremy Powell, creative director. Jacob Sutherland, director. All rights reserved. Whether you're a big, medium, or small business, managing and growing the bottom line is important. Focus CFO brings the experience and financial acumen of a Fortune 100 chief financial officer to your company at a fraction of the cost. PL help, internal reporting processes, or any business transitions or events. Focus CFO will help you and your team have a CFO in your company's back pocket. Focus CFO. Learn more at focuscfo.com. This podcast is brought to you by Yes Weekly, the triad's largest circulated and best read weekly magazine. You can also find us online at yesweekly.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Yes Weekly, your trusted news leader for local arts, entertainment, music, food, and more for nearly 18 years.